Hey everybody, welcome or welcome back to my channel. Truth Unites is a place for theology and apologetics done in an ironic way. The word ironic means aiming for peace. And I'm really excited to talk about the Center for Baptist Renewal with Luke Stamps and Matt Emerson and Brandon Smith was gonna join us, but he couldn't make it. But um, yeah, I'm really, maybe to start off with, share with me and with everybody, how did the Center for Baptist Renewal actually start? I'm actually really curious whose idea was it or was it you guys talking together? How did that actually come together? Well, Luke and I met at California Baptist University. I, I started working there in 2011 and then he came in 2012. And so we, through just developing friendship, discovered mutual interests in recovering liturgy, historic doctrine, those sorts of things. And so, you know, we, we, we talked about, we saw other people doing that from different pers perspectives, including other Baptists who don't share some of our same fundamental commitments, but who are nevertheless fellow Baptists like us. And just said, man, it'd be great if we could think about this from an evangelical or Southern Baptist for our context perspective. Uh, we presented a paper at ETS in 2014. I think. That sounds right. Uh, and uh, it was part of the Baptist Studies group. And the Baptist Studies group, the, the session that year was on the four ecclesial notes um, from the from the creed. And so we gave a paper on Baptists and the Catholicity of the church. Around that around that point, uh, Brandon Smith introduced himself to us and expressed shared interests. Uh, I think he may have been able to be at that ETS. I can't remember. Um, anyway, so we developed a friendship with Brandon and just talked about the need for this kind of work from within our own context and his mutual friend winston hotman was interested in that as well and so eventually we just said let's try to let's try to start something let's try to start a center didn't know exactly what it was going to look like but received counsel from various other people we respect and trust and and eventually launched it uh in march of 2017 i think is that right Something like that, yeah. 2018, like right. yeah. I don't know. So that, that's the that's the long and short of it. There's lots of twists and turns in the in the, but that's the gist. Right, right. So for someone who's not already familiar, how would you give kind of the elevator pitch of just what is basically the vision of the CBR? Yeah, I mean we're trying to position the Baptist movement <clears throat> within the one holy Catholic and Apostolic Church, right? So trying to to say that Baptists are not um, or need not be um, by nature sectarian, but can be can we could be ourselves as a renewal movement within the one true church. I mean, obviously we differ with other Christian traditions and some important ways on on uh, various doctrines, but at the same time we share much in common with other Christians, other denominations, and so it's kind of a way to you know to mainly help Baptists. <clears throat> kind of it's i mean there's kind of i guess a, a front-facing part but also like an internal part like you know, in some sense we would like to uh, tell other traditions hey we're here uh to be a part of the conversation um within the one true church we want to you know have have dialogue with <clears throat> other traditions and and try to present uh again baptist as a renewal movement within the broader church but also really mainly internally to try to say to our own people our own churches um, yeah, listen, we're, we, we're Christians too, right? We're Protestants. Uh, we are little C Catholics. We are little O Orthodox Christians. And there are resources that uh, we can draw on that predate our own Baptist movement, that predate the Protestant Reformation. 
Uh, and at the same time, there are resources within our own tradition that that can you know speak to the broader church as well. So it's that, that kind of um, resourcing the great tradition for Baptists, I guess, is sort of the, the short way to put it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so without trying to beat up on Baptists too much here, but what would you say are some of the weaknesses or the deficiencies that you see in the in the world of Baptists that the CBR is trying to remedy? So from from my own experience as a, a Baptist, I didn't I didn't grow up Baptist. I grew up in a mainline denomination and became Baptist in college. And so I I wasn't really all that familiar with Baptist culture. Um, I pretty much was trying to find a, a place where I could land that affirmed the inerrancy and authority of Scripture, that affirmed um, believers' baptism, that affirmed, I didn't know this term at the time, but a kind of local church autonomy. So I was looking for something like that because I had I had grown up in a context where the Bible wasn't taken seriously. And was convicted that I needed to do that. And as I read the Bible, I thought, you know, babies aren't baptized. Local churches don't have bishops. And, 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 you know, obviously people disagree with me on these things. I'm just saying this is my own kind of entryway into Baptist life. And so I read the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. I thought, oh, okay, here's, here's something that I think reflects what Scripture teaches. I had no cultural context whatsoever for what Southern Baptist life is. Um, as I've, as I've, been shaped and formed by specifically Southern Baptists, although there are other Baptists that have influenced me. Um, you know, they've they've done a lot of great things for me. They helped me to take the Bible seriously, to take evangelism seriously, to understand doctrine and take it seriously. But there are still things in our tradition that I think um, we can point out and try to help address in our own current context. I, I said the other day, actually. Uh, you know, I think there's a pretty big anti-intellectualism strain in Baptist life and not just Southern Baptist life, where we think that doctrine is a checkbox where you take a new members class and you're like, yeah, I believe all this stuff, but then theology doesn't matter for the rest of your Christian life. Um, it's it's evangelism missions, maybe ministry to the city that really matters. Um, and, and, you know, it's kind of kind of pietism that that exists in Baptist life. And so what one of the things we want to help our fellow Baptists do is to take the history of Christian theology seriously and see how it helps the church and really how the formation of what we call orthodoxy happened in the context of pastoral ministry. Like the, the, when, when doctrines like simplicity or the eternal relations of origin were articulated clearly and systematically in the fourth and fifth centuries and even before that, it was in the context of people trying to pastor their churches. And they're saying, hey, God doesn't change. This is what this is how that matters for you. And so we want to help Baptist pastors see that taking theology seriously helps you take pastoral ministry seriously. Um, the same thing is true for liturgy or you know how we how we order our corporate worship. There's a long tradition of how the church has worshiped together in in christianity and there are good reasons for doing some of the the things that we've done throughout church history in corporate worship that baptists have frankly abandoned in some cases corporate confession weekly lord's supper um even reciting the lord's prayer you know there, there are things that were fairly typical of christian worship 
that have fallen out of practice for Baptists for various reasons that we believe can strengthen Baptist churches and help them. So those are some of the, those are a couple of things I would point out. I think part of that too is um, an underlying biblicism, Mm. you know, which that word kind of means different things to different people. Um, But I mean, in one sense, biblicism might be good and right. I mean, if you say the Bible is our supreme authority, um, as a kind of Protestant principle, if you think about it in like um, David Bevington's quadrilateral, you know, or, you know, you know, sort of this famous definition of what it means to be an evangelical. Part of that is biblicism, in the sense that the Bible is is taken as the supreme source and standard of Christian doctrine and life. But there is a there is a negative sense of biblicism that is a kind of Bible onlyism that sees like really no benefit in uh, the tradition, no benefit in in other forms of, of theological authority under the supreme authority of scripture, like creeds and confessions and, and so on. And, you know, other theological, you know, giants in the history of the faith. <clears throat> and so I think that's one thing that Baptists often struggle with. Uh, there, there's, uh, on the one hand, a, a rightful emphasis on the inerrancy, infallibility, authority of scripture. Those are all things that we happily affirm um, as, as evangelicals and as Baptists. Um, but that can, if you're not careful, that can kind of be distorted to to sort of ignore the whole history of interpretation, right? That there are 2,000 years of of Christians reading, reflecting on, synthesizing, gaining, uh, defending what the scriptures teach, um, and so that's part of what we're trying to 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 battle here as well is to say you you can have, um, you know. What 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 I've described elsewhere is a, a kind of thick biblicism, you know, like a, where you're committed to the Bible as the supreme source and standard, um, but but that entails within it a, a respect for the providential ways in which God has illuminated the church in interpreting the Bible down through the centuries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll just add one more thing to that. I, I think that Baptists are in some ways uniquely susceptible to to negative aspects of the Enlightenment, especially as it relates to individualism. So I I affirm very clearly uh, local church autonomy. I affirm the the necessity of personal responsibility before the Lord. I affirm separation of church and state, all those Baptist distinctives. Um, And those are right and biblical in my mind. I do think, though, that because of our emphasis on the individual, we can be uniquely susceptible to individualism in a negative sense, where we're totally disconnected from our history, from our ecclesial context, from the rest of the church, from its history of exegesis, from historical theology, from liturgical practices. We just, we're uniquely susceptible to that. And so we want to help reconnect or foster the connection that already exists between Baptists, especially evangelical Baptists and the Christian tradition. Yeah. Uh, it's awesome. I love what you guys are doing. And in just a second, I want to come back to something that Matt said about where Baptists have kind of abandoned some historic Baptist practice practices. And we can talk about that a little bit, but I was curious too, just what, what is some of the fruit that you see? Like, for example, there's the reading, the annual reading 
that you guys have structured. And I'll put a link in the video description to your guys' uh, YouTube channel where you can watch some of the discussions about that reading. I'm just curious what you hear back in terms of positive fruit as people are engaging some of these historic theologians. Yeah, I mean, we so at the beginning of last this year, I guess the beginning of 2021, we um, sort of launched the Theology Classics Reading Challenge, where we compiled kind of 12 uh, works or you know portions of works from theological luminaries in Christian history. Um, some of them Baptist, but but others not. Uh, most of them not. And um, just kind of challenge people to read one a month, you know, so 12 months of the year, 12 readings. And um, we haven't really quantified sort of who all is participating in that. Um, we, we, I guess, I suppose we could like look at the numbers of who's, you know, uh, watching the the YouTube videos or podcasts that we've done on it. But we have gotten, um, you know, lots of feedback via email and, and otherwise people just saying how much they appreciate it. I think there's a real hunger among Baptists for, this kind of thing, maybe especially in the younger generations, you know, but not exclusively. Actually, we we not not infrequently we get emails from older pastors uh, who 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 say things like, "I've loved church history since I went to seminary in the 60s or 70s, uh, and I've sort of labored in Baptist churches my whole life without much of that emphasis and, and sort of longing for people to emphasize, you know, uh, Christian history and and the history of theology." Um, and so those those are the really the most most encouraging emails I think that we get are from older Baptist ministers and believers who are saying this is something that we we sort of wish had been there uh, before now. Yeah, and and I will say that we are motivated. We aren't just motivated by younger Baptists wanting to connect with them, but it also is true that in both of our experiences in different places, younger Baptists have left Baptist life for other denominations, especially Anglicanism usually, um, because they feel like Baptists are totally disconnected from the rest of the Christian tradition. And the reality is that's just not true. It, it, it feels true, and I don't want to discount anybody's experience of uh, being of how they were uh, catechized or trained or whatever. And it, you know, so it is true that in a lot of our Baptist educational context, we don't actually emphasize how Baptists are uh, connected to the Christian tradition. What I mean when I say it's not true is if you go and read early Baptists, it's very clear that they wanted to show other believers of different traditions that they, too, arose out of the same common Christian tradition. So early Baptists did not see themselves as some kind of novel separatist group that was totally disconnected from everybody else. And so we do want to, part of the reason for the center, at least uh, apologetically, I don't know if that's the right term or not, but we do want to say to Baptists who feel antsy about whether or not they can remain Baptists and care about the entire Christian tradition, we want to say, yes, you can. And, and here's how, here's why. So those are some, some other motivations. Yeah. That's really helpful. So, okay, so this term that's come up a couple times already, and I know it's on on the CBR website too, Baptist Catholicity. I know a lot of people hear those two words and they seem like oxymorons to people, that you could be lowercase c Catholic. And even that word lowercase c Catholic can be a 
uh, can set off alarm bells for people sometimes. So if, uh, you've t- touched on this already, but maybe you could just briefly respond to this concern of someone who says, if you try to do this, if you try to be lowercase c Catholic, you're going to end up watering down Baptist distinctives. You're going to be less Baptist if you try to do that. How, how, how would you interact with that concern? Yeah, well, a, a friend of ours actually said that exact thing after our paper that I mentioned at, at ECS. He said, you know, uh, I appreciate some of what you said, but I kind of take it with open eyes. Um, wait and see what's going to, what are you going to do with it kind of thing. Um, and then also just said, I want to ask what, how can we, how can we amplify, clarify, show what Baptists have given to the tradition? Um, and that's a valid comment. I mean, you know, part of what we want to do is connect Baptists not just to the Christian tradition, but to the Baptist tradition, because often Baptists don't actually know our own tradition, much less mm-hmm. the, the entirety of the Christian tradition. Um, I, I actually think that if you go and read early Baptists, they were very, and, you know, I already said this, but I'll, I'll say it again. When we talk about Baptist Catholicity, what we mean is that Baptists are one part of the bigger stream of, of Christianity. Our Baptist, our, our, our smaller Baptist stream is a part of the larger river or whatever analogy you want to use there uh, of, of Orthodox Christianity. And we don't think that demonstrating that waters down Baptist distinctives, but actually clarifies what it really means to be Baptist. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't being, you know, for instance, being Baptist doesn't mean, like I said, that you're, we're some sort of novel sectarian group that just was like me and my Bible. And here we are um, like, like we've suddenly become the, the first generation of the post apostolic period where we're, we're just starting over. Like that's not what it means to be Baptist. Um, it, what it, it doesn't being Baptist doesn't mean we're revisionists on the doctrine of the Trinity or the doctrine of Christology or anything else like that. It doesn't even mean we're revisionists on the doctrines of ecclesiology, um, uh, the doctrine of ecclesiology. There are, there are ways that Baptists believe that those doctrines, especially ecclesiology needed to be reformed, but they weren't revisionists. In fact, if you read Madison Grace's chapter in uh, the Baptist and the Christian Tradition book that we edited, he shows that early Baptist confessions of faith in, the, in their statements on ecclesiology were almost direct quotes of like the Nicene Creed and some other common uh, language about ecclesiology throughout the Christian tradition. You know, So we think that showing how Baptists are connected to the tradition actually clarifies what it means to be Baptist rather than only talking about Baptist distinctives. Yeah. The word Catholic gets us in trouble both both within our camp and outside of it, right? So those on the outside will look at us and say, you can't be Baptist and be Catholic because you invalidate our baptisms, right? I mean, that's that's one of the most common challenges that we face from from other traditions to say, well, you can't be a Baptist um, Catholic, you can't be, have Baptist Catholicity because believer's baptism entails some kind of invalidation of infant baptism. Um, even there, there's there's a diversity of views within the Baptist tradition on that question. But 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 that's that's one thing that we get from the outside. But you're right, from the inside, like 
there's um the sense that well catholic is kind of a a swear word anyway for a lot of baptists mm -hmm. uh there is a, a history of anti-catholicism roman catholic tradition within the baptist world in america especially that we're sort of swimming upstream against but we, we try to clarify to say we don't mean capital c roman catholic but obviously the the the, the broader sense of the universal um body of christ across space and time um and and you know to matt's point if you go back and read the early baptist confessions and, and also influential baptist theologians uh they are explicitly echoing the language of of creedal conciliar uh trinitarianism and christology uh, they're, they're even echoing uh language from other traditions on things like the lord's supper which we may want to talk more about the sacraments um, and, and then, and then sometimes, in a, in, a, in a couple different cases, uh, you have Baptist symbols, Baptist uh, confessional statements that just simply include the full text of the three ecumenical creeds. Uh, so you see that. I mean, just to give a little homework here for Baptists and non-Baptists, by the way, we found, you know, I say this with 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 as much um, with, with sincere kindness and charity, <laughs> but we found that a lot of former Baptists know the least about the tradition they left. And I'm not sure exactly why that is. People, again, we don't begrudge anyone's spiritual journey. Sometimes people have a bad experience uh, with a particular church or whatever that that shapes their Christian journey. Uh, but but sometimes the the most um, fiercely uh, anti-Baptist critics are people who are former Baptists who never really were catechized well in their own tradition. Um, and so I would encourage everyone to go read um, the Orthodox Creed which was uh, a confessional statement by the general Baptists. Those of you who know a little bit about Baptist history may know there were two Baptist groups uh, in the 17th century, the general Baptists who were more Arminian and the particular Baptists who were more Calvinist. So I'm just going to give you one example from each of those traditions where the three ecumenical creeds are explicitly affirmed. So one is uh, in the general Baptist Orthodox Creed, uh, which was compiled by a general Baptist minister named Thomas Monk. Uh, who, by the way, also wrote one of the best works uh, on the Trinity in the 17th century, a book called A Cure for the Cankering Error of the New Eutychians. They just don't make books <laughs> like that. But anyway, Thomas Monk, General Baptist, the Orthodox Creed, um, he quotes verbatim the language from uh, the Articles of Religion um, introducing the three ecumenical creeds. And then in a particular Baptist context, a particular Baptist minister named Hercules Collins, another great name, uh, Hercules <laughs> Collins, um, who 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 compiled a Baptist version um, of the Heidelberg Catechism. So it's, it's almost verbatim from the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, but with some Baptist um, emendations. And at the end, he adds a chapter with the full text of the ecumenical creeds. And so the Baptists, both general Baptists and particular Baptists, were, were at pains to say, we are little c Catholic when it comes to the cardinal doctrines of the faith. Yes, of course, we're um, departing from the tradition uh, on the subjects of baptism um, and, and on the, the meaning and mode of baptism in some ways. Um, but we're not trying to overthrow the creedal foundations of the faith. Yeah, and I would add to, I would add to that that in addition to clearly demonstrating their connection to Greedal conciliar Christianity in Trinitarianism and Christology, 
They also clearly demonstrate their connection to reformational doctrines, especially related to soteriology and ecclesiology. So the, the, the language about justification, you know, you, you could find it in any of the, the reformational confessions. And the, the language about ecclesiology, including language about the sacraments, both baptism and the Lord's Supper, again, just, you know, you could read it and then go read, especially among the Reformed tradition, confessions about ecclesiology and the sacraments, and you're going to find a lot of the same language. Mm-hmm. And so it's a mistake to think that what Baptists did was, you know, it's first of all a mistake to think that Baptists just sat down, me and my Bible, and came up with stuff. That's not what happened, right? They're connecting themselves to the broad stream of creedal conciliar Christianity. But it's also a mistake to think that in the distinctives of Baptist thought, there is no connection whatsoever to other Reformational traditions or even to the whole Christian tradition. Even in the area of ecclesiology, even in, even in the area of baptism, the language that they use is still connecting them to other Christian traditions, even while they show how their view is distinct from those Christian traditions, especially with respect to the meaning mode um, and polity. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'll put a link to the book that Matt you mentioned at the beginning, uh, "Baptist and the Great Tradition," I believe is the title. Um, that you guys... Christian, Christian tradition, yeah. Thank you. Sorry, Christian tradition. So, um, for people who are interested in that, they can check that out. Um, we'll go on to the sacraments in just a second, but first, let me give you the chance to speak to this concern because, and it is encouraging talking to you guys because I often feel a bit lonely on YouTube because there's not many <laughs> Baptists, uh, you know, talking about these things. And honestly, I get this sentiment, and I take it in in good faith as a genuine curiosity, a genuine sense of astonishment that people have of how can you be connected to church history and remain a Baptist? You know, I get this sentiment a great deal. Uh, Gavin, if you were a Lutheran or an Anglican defending Protestantism, that I could maybe understand. But a Baptist, you know, how, how can you be immersed in, and you're, you read the church fathers and you still remain uh, a Baptist? So I'm just curious how you guys would interact with a concern like that. If, if someone says that, how, how would you respond? I think part of it is to, is to, in some sense, admit the validity of the criticism and to say that, well, we're Protestant Christians, right? So for us, the supreme source and standard of of truth is the Bible, right? Um, and so all that we read in the Christian tradition, uh, we read as a, at best, as a subordinate authority under the supreme authority of Scripture. Um, and, and so there are... Um, there are plenty of places where we read the tradition and say that's that's wrong, right? I mean, that, that we the, these theological luminaries, as as much as we might glean from them and learn from them, uh, they were sometimes wrong about things, and and we were always seeking more light from the Word. Um, and so th- there's a sense in which that's that's okay, right? That sort of picking and choosing just is what it means to be a Protestant in some ways, right? I mean, and, and, and I'd have to carefully qualify that. I'm not, I'm not saying it's willy-nilly, right? But if, if we become convinced as, as churches and then as uh, assemblies of churches that um, the Bible corrects certain aspects of the, tr- the Christian tradition, well, we have to go with the Bible, right? 
And so in some sense, that's just what it means to be a Protestant, right? So that's just another way of saying, well, Baptists are Protestants. Uh, and, and I'm happy to admit that. But in another sense, like there, it's just not true that, I mean, that, this is actually related, that the, the, the tradition is not uniform, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, even on the questions of baptism, mm-hmm. you know? Um, I, I, I think we had to be very careful in making arguments from church history on uh, the, the debate over the subjects of baptism. But if you go back to the earliest centuries, it's just not as clear as Pado Baptist apologists would like to like us to believe that infant baptism was the universal practice of the church uh, in an unbroken perpetuity from the time of the apostles. Uh, there, there is uh, plenty of evidence in the early church that baptism was delayed um, until adulthood for various reasons that we may or may not agree with, right? But it's just simply not the case that you have um, this sort of clear apostolic practice that 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 continues unabated um, until you know our, the current day. Uh, the practice of, of infant baptism was developmental, um, and you know one of the best. Uh, books on this, I'm sure you're familiar with, is Everett Ferguson's book on baptism in the early uh, church. And I mean, his his theses, I'm I'm sure, uh, can can be debated. But I mean, he makes the argument that, um, you know, the the only clear examples of inf- the earliest clear examples of infant baptism we have um, are on funeral or are on um, um, inscriptions um, for who had died, right? Um, on 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 burial uh, inscriptions, um, and so it appears that infant baptism, at least in Ferguson's view, uh, is d- develops as a kind of emergency means for children who are near death. Anyway, all that's debated. That's fine. Like I, I don't think there's a clear case that either side can make a kind of slam dunk case from the first 300 years of the church to say this proves my side is true. But it's just to say it's more complicated than Pado Baptist apologetics sometimes lead us to believe. And there have been others who have been convinced of that as well. Um, I mean, John Calvin himself became, you know, was convinced that immersion was the earliest Christian practice. And it's a separate issue from subjects of the subjects of baptism. But but the the mode of baptism appears to have been immersion from the earliest centuries. So even on the question of baptism, the tradition is not uniform. And in any case, we're happily Protestants who want to say the main question is what the Bible says. What does the Bible clearly teach? in terms of the Bible's own covenantal development and the practice of the New Testament. So church history can be a guide, even an authoritative guide, to interpreting the Bible, but it doesn't usurp the authority of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really helpful. And for people who want to do a little deeper dive, just following along with what you mentioned from Everett Ferguson, there's some some of these other top patristic scholars on baptism really do end up in either the dual practice view, like David Wright, or uh, they're, they're credo-baptists. They're making a case for credo-baptism from the early church. George Beasley Murray is another uh, scholar in that area. So um, so maybe just extending this a little bit further on the sacraments. This is an area where the often the impression is um, evangelicals and Baptists specifically have a low view of the sacraments. The other traditions, the non-Protestant traditions, uh, some of the uh, more historic and liturgical Protestant traditions have a high view of the sacraments. On your guys' website, uh, you've got this manifesto, and you talk about the sacraments as signs and seals of God's grace. Um, you talk about whether we call them as sacraments or ordinances. And 
you kind of draw attention to historic Baptist views on those things. So maybe you could just flesh out a little bit, kind of, um, can a Baptist have a high view of the sacraments, and if so, in what way? Yes. <laughs> uh, again, I, I rely on early Baptists for these things, and, and I would just say that in the early Baptist confessions and creeds, it's obvious that they're just ripping off uh, the Reformed confessions and the language about the meaning of baptism and the Lord's Supper. So they would, <clears throat> they, they very clearly are rejecting the kind of uh, sacerdotalism and the, the kind of um, Roman Catholic view of the sacraments where it's an infusion of, of justifying grace. So they're, they're rejecting all of that, but they're retaining the the element of the sacraments that affirms it as a means of God's grace. It's just sanctifying grace. It's not justifying grace. It's a grace of God's presence that's transformative. Uh, justification is a one one time act at conversion. You know, so but but baptism um, and Lord, the Lord's Supper and these early Baptist creeds and confessions is a manifestation of God's presence to the believer and to the congregation. And it's and it's therefore a pro, it is such because it's a proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ in word and in symbol. Um, it's a way to unite the congregation together. I mean, like it, it clearly has very obvious spiritual meaning. Um, that's not bare memorialism. Um, and, and I, you know, I'll let Lou chime in. But I, the only other thing I would say is memorialism gets a bad rap. Um, but, you know, it, in Scripture, especially the Lord's Supper is a memory of what Christ has done. So it's not like we should abandon the, the memorial aspect of the Supper as we talk about this. Memorialism is important. And in fact, there are people who have articulated a memorialist position who do so in such a way that Christ is present through remembering his sacrifice. Um, and so... You know, I, I don't want anybody to hear my use of the term sacrament or our use of the term sacrament as an abandonment of a kind of Baptist emphasis on the memorial aspect of the supper. I just think there are other things going on because of the fact that we're remembering Christ in the supper. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, and er the earliest Baptists used the word sacrament. Um, but that, that's not alien to Baptist usage. So someone like Benjamin Keach, an important particular Baptist minister in London uh, in the 17th century, spoke about how the Lord's Supper as a sacrament. Um, and so ordinance, in the, in the earliest usage, ordinance was not seen as, a, as a, a competitor to or a replacement of sacrament. Ordinance was just actually a broader term that described the things that Jesus ordained, namely the, the ordinary means of grace, preaching, uh, baptism, Lord's Supper, and prayer. So ordinance was seen as a, a broader term. That's why it was used. It came to be used as a kind of alternative to sacrament, like the Methodists have sacraments, we Baptists have ordinances. But actually, from the beginning, it was not so, right? From the earliest Baptists used sac the language of the sacraments. And so in, in the short answer to your question, can Baptists be sacraments? So how or in what way? The answer is yes. And the how is actually very close to the Reformed tradition, as Matt has laid out here. Uh, what the Baptists say um, about the Lord's Supper um, and say the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, uh, sometimes referred to as the 1689 Confession, 
um, because that's when the General Assembly adopted it um, as as the the statement of faith for for the particular Baptists. Um, but the the 1689 Confession echoes exactly the same language about what the Supper does as the Westminster Confession of Faith does. And so Baptists, in that sense, are reformed-ish. We we might say uh, certainly they change things uh, uh, related to uh, you know the subjects of baptism um, and therefore of the Lord's Supper. But um, but what they believe the the sacrament actually did is very close to what um, the Reformed tradition believed, especially in the case of of infant bat- of, I'm sorry of of uh, the Lord's Supper. Now it, baptism is a little bit different in some sense. I think. Um, Baptists are actually in a better position to affirm the sacramental nature of baptism than our Reformed Pado-Baptist friends are. Now, there are other traditions that I think would escape this criticism, but the the mistake that I think the Reformed tradition sometimes has made uh, is to separate baptism from conversion or baptism from regeneration where baptism becomes merely promissory. It's merely uh, a kind of future-looking, when this child grows up into the faith, then what's signified will be sealed in, in their life in a saving way, in a regenerating way. So they sort, of, they sort of introduced this gap between the administration of the sacrament of baptism and actual regeneration. Now, Calvin and some others would say that, you know, it's possible that God regenerates the infant in in baptism, but still there's this notional separation between baptism as a sign and seal of the covenant, covenant promises, and actual regeneration. That's actually the novel position, I think. Um, Certainly the Catholics, the Orthodox, the Lutherans, the Anglicans would not have had that kind of notional separation between baptism and regeneration. Baptism is, is closely tied to regeneration and conversion. And I actually think Baptists can affirm the same thing. Uh, because we believe that faith is prerequisite to baptism, there, there there's this sort of close matrix, we might say, this sort of intimate integral matrix between repentance and faith, conversion, regeneration, and baptism, because baptism is to take place at the beginning of the Christian life. Um, and in that sense, baptism, the way the earliest Baptists spoke about it, was baptism was uh, the seal of our union with Christ. The union with Christ, that sort of begins in you know, repentance and faith, but it sort of has this formal seal, this formal ratification, not in, you know, the, like, walk, walking an aisle or praying a prayer, like we, we think about in, in contemporary Baptist practice, but the, the ordinary means by which our union with Christ was sealed and ratified was baptism. Mm-hmm. So, that, again, there's this close connection between baptism and regeneration. Uh, it's not a baptismal regeneration in the strict sense. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But it's this close connection between baptism and, and regeneration or conversion uh, that the Baptists retain. That's actually lost in the Reformed Pato Baptist view. I don't know. What do you think about that, Gavin? Is that? I mean, you, you've studied these things more than we have. I think it's really helpful. Yeah, I think it's really helpful. It, it it maps on to what a lot of my thoughts have been recently. You know, this is another one of the appeals. Uh, leveraged against us is if there's anything that is universal among the church fathers, it's baptismal regeneration. That's the appeal that's often made against us. And uh, I just have, the more I try to consider that and with an open mind kind of say, okay, you know, what, what's the data supporting this? Then I go into the, the fathers, the early witnesses, 
Yeah, it, I think there. I think what is universal is what Luke is talking about: this close association between baptism and salvation. Um, so the language I've used to describe it is baptism is the public expression of salvation. It's the formal, and I, I think your language is also right on with how I'm thinking. The, it's the form, it's the ceiling of it. And there's various metaphors that um, I've used to articulate that. But yeah, um, that that close association, a Baptist is able to retain in the way that a Reformed Pedobaptist doesn't. And that's what I hear you saying. And I think that's right. And yeah, the earliest records on this, it, it what happens is people overly specify because baptismal regeneration, number one, has a range of meanings. But if you take that to mean through the water itself, the water is the instrumental means by which you are regenerated. I think that's reading things into a lot of these patristic statements. A, a lot of these church fathers, they're just not speaking to that specific question. They're speaking at a little more general level of the the association between baptism and salvation. So, yeah, I think a lot of those statements against us are overstatements. And um, so, yeah, I think that's really helpful. But in my mind, it's one of those things where we have to recognize the history of um, the, the history of doctrinal development. I mean, these these debates don't actually happen until they happen with Baptists, you know, um, in terms of, you know, the baptismal regeneration question. Nobody's nobody's really trying to dive deep and clarify anything you know and so you get to the point where you, it comes up as a matter of discussion and then you see this fracturing which is not really one group taking the position and another group taking not the position it's more like well now this is a matter of debate and here we have all these options before so we didn't really recognize that we're under this one umbrella of these sort of generic say i mean the same thing happens with i know in my mind at least same thing happens with transubstantiation you know there's this assumption that transubstantiation is the position uh, of the entire church but then you look at it and it's like no this clearly came about in a way in such a way that the language of the church about the lord's supper was articulated in a context in which aristotle is being retrieved and that produces this this view right here, which is now called transubstantiation. So it's a it's an anachronism to take the debates that happen a millennia or now two millennia on and try to map that debate onto statements of the early church. Mm -hmm. And we could, I mean, pretty much anything except for the Trinity and Christology, you could you could say, you know, I mean, there, there's more than that, but those two things especially are really the ones that we can trace to the patristic period and say, this is the consensus. A lot of other stuff, it's more difficult than that. Yeah. I, oh, right on. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think you you have to see that with the Lord's Supper because of the debates going on, you know, all the way up into the, the ninth century, you've got debates about the nature of real presence and neither side is seen as like the official position of the church. And then even after that, you've got more, you've got Berengar and others with a huge following opposing transubstantiation in its kind of earlier form, and um, then it's controversial. So that's a long period of time before you kind of get this solidification of the of the of the categories. So, um, 
Yeah, that's really helpful. Well, maybe we can pivot on to a new topic and also kind of pivoting back on to <laughs> helping, uh, helping the Baptists uh, in the work of retrieval here, because a lot of the great work you guys have done is in the doctrine of God, doctrine of Christ, and then with the Trinity specifically. Um, there's a kind of a resurgence of retrieval of the doctrine of God and, and kind of people, lots of people interested in retrieving the church fathers on the Trinity. Really exciting. What would you say is the importance of that? What is, maybe a way I could ask the question is this. What are the errors that tend to happen when we have a view of the Trinity that's just informed by Scripture and we're not engaged in historical theology? I think that what we what we witnessed over the last I don't know how far you want to go back maybe 100 200 years really um, is not quite that's not quite the description of of the state of affairs it's not quite Bible only but it's it's Bible and then a very skeletal understanding of Nicene Trinitarianism mm-hmm. you know so that you had uh, you know pretty much universally like it, there's this there's an affirmation of well there's one essence three persons, you know, one, one God, one, one Godhead, but you have these three distinct persons. So there, there's an attempt to try to position that against the various heresies of the early church. But, but I, I know, I just, I think in our, in a lot of our experiences, like the, the, the interaction with the actual texts of the fourth century <clears throat> was minimal. Mm-hmm. So you had like the, the, the kind of end result, at least in terms of like the formal propositions that we feel like we have to affirm about the Trinity, but there wasn't always a deep engagement with the fourth century text that explained what that was. Like, what, what do we mean when we talk about three persons? If you're not, if you're not interacting with what say the Cappadocian fathers meant by a person uh, or what St. Augustine meant by a person, a a a divine person, then other definitions of person sort of rush to fill the gap. And so you can still end up with Trinitarian error that might not be formal heresy, right? I think we have to be clear and very careful. I think I think some of the ways that people have talked about uh, the Trinity debates of recent years, for those who are familiar with that in, in evangelical circles, uh, pretty, pretty hotly contested uh, debates over the last five years over the Trinity. And sometimes I feel like language of heresy and heretical get thrown around in some sloppy ways uh, and in some uncharitable ways. Um, and so I think we have to be very careful not to accuse people of heretics too quickly, right, uh, or hastily. Uh, but at the same time, you, you can end up with Trinitarian error if you're using the right terms, but you're using a different lexicon. <laughs> you know, you're not actually engaging with what Athanasius and Gregory and, and Basil and so on were actually saying about what these terms meant. Yeah, I, so what I would say is we don't want to pit the Bible against tradition, and we don't. I, I don't want to say that everybody needs tradition in the same way that you need the Bible. Right? I mean, theoretically, anybody could arrive at the doctrine of the Trinity just with their Bible because the Bible teaches the doctrine of the Trinity. But <laughs> you know, the the problem that I think we're seeing is that that's exactly what people are trying to do. And they're running into the same problems that have already been discussed and resolved a millennia and a half ago, you know, and, and and I think that arises from the fact that they don't engage with the primary sources. P- 
people, I think, I don't remember exactly how you put it when you started, Luke, but you said something about a bare bones approach to Nicaea. And that's that's part of the problem is people think that to affirm Nicaea is merely to affirm the, tom, the term homoousios. But what you get when you engage those primary texts is the fact, you know, this inner biblical, canonical, theological logic that shows that you can't affirm homoousios if you don't also affirm the eternal relations of origin and reject any other distinction between the persons besides that. So you can't actually just take homoousios by itself and call yourself Nicene. That doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. And I'm not trying to be a, you know, some kind of arbitrary gatekeeper here. That's, that's just what Nicaea is. It's not an affirmation of one term. It's that one term in the context of this whole interbiblical, canonical, theological logic that the, the fathers articulated. And so I, I have a problem with um, just the attitude that I can start again. It's like this. Let's let's have a small group and develop a doctrine of the Trinity by ourselves. That doesn't work. Not not because tr- the tradition has any kind of ontological sameness to scripture in terms of authority level, but because you're not a man on an island as you do theology. These things have already been talked about, discussed by people who are smarter than me, smarter than you, smarter than any of us. They've already figured it out. The church has affirmed it. And now I'm going to be the one to stand over all of that and say, no, we got to start over again. Like that's just, that to me is, is just arrogant. On the other hand, um, because of the context that we're in in the 20th century and now the 21st century where church history has not been taken seriously for quite a while, historical theology has been something where we're demonstrating how us moderns are so enlightened and these pre-moderns were silly. You know, I mean, nobody nobody takes church history seriously in that regard, and they haven't for a while. I also want to be more charitable than maybe the pro-Nicenes would have been for those people who are articulating what I would call a Trinitarian error, even if it's not, as Luke said, heresy. You know, we're, we, have, we have 150 years at least now of a kind of enlightenment arrogance where we, we don't want to listen to the past. And I'm not saying that's true of the people who are postulating what I would call error with respect to the doctrine of the Trinity. I'm not saying they're arrogant. I'm saying that's the kind of cultural environment in which we arrive, in which we arrive to study the doctrine of the Trinity already. Like you might, you yourself might not be arrogant, but we're in an environment where our entire culture, the entire Western half of the globe is arrogant towards the past, you know? And so I want to be charitable and careful when I talk about those who I believe are in error. I don't think it's because they're spiritually deficient or unsaved or heretics or anything like that. I still think it's error and we need to correct it, but I don't, I'm not going to call it heresy. Now, I think I I'll say this. I'm going to get a little salty, more salty. I do think there are people who are deliberately obstinate and refuse to engage. And that is that is, I would say, not just doctrinal error, but spiritually immature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll stop there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think for a long time, evangelicals were. um more, and this is still true in some ways, like more characterized by um, careful biblical scholarship, right? I mean, I think we could still see this in the 
the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society, where there still is a tilt. I mean, it's sort of become a, a joke for some, like this guy. Um, <laughs> you know, there's there's a tilt towards biblical studies, right? Where there's less theology, less historical theology. It's more biblical studies. I think that's that's actually um, symptomatic of what has been true of the evangelical movement more broadly for a long time, where um, our, our expertise really has been biblical studies, biblical scholarship, and has, has been less concerned with historical theology or historic dogmatic categories and so on. Again, that's, that's a broad generalization. There are exceptions to that that we could point to. Um, but I, I think in general, that's been the case. And, you know, the fact that we live in an era where some of that is being remedied, right? I mean, I think we can all look around over the last hundred years and see not just in evangelicalism, but more broadly, these um, movements of retrieval, of racehorse moth, or, or of, you know, recovering the past. And and I think we, I mean, I, our, our friend Timothy George, you know, has, has commented that we can see that as a work of the Spirit, that God God is doing a renewal work uh, across the traditions. I mean, among Catholics, among uh, Reformed folk, among Anglicans, among um, Methodists, among Baptists, among non-denominational evangelicals, where there is this um, a sense of a need for recovery, for retrieval. And I think we can see that as, as a move of God. But what do we do in, in, in sort of the meantime with people who haven't necessarily been catechized by those kinds of uh, traditional formulations? I think that's a real concern pastorally for a lot of us in the church and in the, uh, the evangelical academy is, is sort of ha- how do we treat people with respect and love who, who didn't, I guess, sort of cut their theological teeth in a climate where retrieval was fashionable. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know, we, we live, we, we, I didn't, we didn't create these movements of retrieval. We are the beneficiaries of them. Right. And it's almost, you know, an accident of history that we are the beneficiaries of that yeah. more accurately. It's the providence of God, I think. And so how we treat those who, um, who may not have had that benefit, I think is is a is a key question of of pastoral wisdom and love. Uh, so anyway, all that to say that that may be kind of meandering for some of your your listeners, but I think um, as evangelicals are recovering the past, especially about the Trinity, also uh, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of the incarnation, and so on, uh, we just need to be careful in saying, let's recover the past, uh, let's keep in step with the great tradition on these things, uh, but at the same time, let's be patient with those who. Um, may not have been as informed by the tradition as they ought to have been. Yeah, <clears throat> that's really good. Well, as we're kind of nearing the end here, this is a question that's kind of an, maybe kind of an oddball question, but it'd be kind of fun to, to think about. And I'm curious what you'd say about this. But so um, I'll ask the question and then I'll kind of explain why I'm asking it. But do you think theological retrieval and engaging the tradition can speak to some of the current cultural issues that we're facing right now. So, for example, there's so much talk of deconstruction right now. So are there ways that engaging church history, engaging the tradition can help us as we're navigating issues like that? So that's kind of what I want to ask about. But to to explain it, I'll just say my own experience has been 
Um, for example, just recently doing some study in Gregory of Nyssa and his criticism of slavery and just finding it so helpful to me in just helping me think through. And what I experienced was he was pushing against um, kind of what I would see as maybe some of the unhealthy tendencies of an extreme conservatism, an extremely conservative ethos or an extreme progressive ethos. And he, I'm, I'm hearing things in Gregory that are surprisingly relevant to conversations happening in the church today and in the culture today about what is justice and, and so forth. So that's just been this feeling of like, wow, this is like ama- amazingly more relevant than I would have anticipated to kind of speak to these particular things that we're wrestling with today. So I'm just curious, does that resonate at all? Do you have any thoughts about that? How, how can retrieval speak yeah. to the issues today? Yeah, I mean, you know, you mentioned Gregory, but also Basil, um, his his work on social justice. And then you have John Chrysostom, who writes a lot about justice, wealth and poverty, these sorts of things. Um, the early church had a very clear sense of the moral obligations of Christians that had n- <laughs> no connection to any of the debates surrounding wokeness today. Right. So, you know, that's that's one way where you can look at a text and say, this person isn't influenced by one side or the other of this debate, but they're very clearly trying to articulate what it means to be a Christian in society and what the, what it means for the church uh, to do that as well. So that's a good example. Um, actually, and I'm, I might be, I hope I'm not stealing Luke's thunder here, but one the thing that came to my mind initially is something that we've been talking about a lot, which is um, the relationship between the church and the state and, and how actually Baptist thought, retrieving Baptist thought on that question can help the current debate surrounding integralism and um, a kind of Lockean disestablishmentarianism. Early Baptists weren't either of those things. So they, they saw a place for the the government to be impacted by what we would call Judeo-Christian principles, but also were very clear on, you know, freedom of religion. And so we think retrieving Baptist thought specifically um, can help in some of the, the political debate or the debates about political theology today. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, the, the, I, I'm fairly new. I, I suppose I, I should be embarrassed to admit this. I'm fairly new to this notion of deconstruction as something that doesn't end in apostasy. Um, I mean, I'm just, just being honest, you know, like I, I, I think that term, um, heretofore has been used in, in ways that meant people leaving the faith. And I've you know, only recently discovered that people are using it in a different sense to mean something that doesn't necessarily entail apostasy, right? Uh, but but it's sort of more like kind of um, unwinding what is only cultural in, in our faith, you know, or, or what is only a product of a particular cultural expression of Christianity and not the knob of Christianity per se. Uh, and so, yeah, in that sense, I absolutely think that um, studying the past is enormously helpful. I mean, that, so, so some of your listeners may be familiar with uh, this essay written by C.S. Lewis on the virtue of reading old books, uh, which was published as an introduction to a, a translation of Athanasius on the Incarnation. Um, and it still is included as the introduction in the St. Vlad's uh, version of, of that book. Um in the popular patristic series, uh, St. Vladimir Seminary Press. Anyway, so Lewis argues that we should read books from the past 
um, not necessarily because the past is always right, but because the past is different. You know, the, the, it's just different. They're, they're different assumptions than people on the left and the right might be assuming the same thing on a particular issue, even as they debate it. But people from the past may have totally different assumptions and totally different perspectives. And so I think I think reading the past, I think, helps to unwind some of those cultural assumptions. Uh, just to throw out another example of this, I recently uh, lectured on um, Thomas Aquinas's views on justice. Um, and that uh, that provoked a lot of uh, reflection uh, among the students on like how how his views of justice apply to issues of social justice today. Uh, and so, yeah, I think resourcing the past for those issues is enormously helpful. Yeah, that's great. Well, maybe we can finish by just highlighting some of your own work in addition to encouraging people to check out the CBR website, the other books I put in the video description, and I'll put these in as well. Uh, Matt, do you want to say anything about your work on the de uh, Christ's descent to the dead and basically what you're trying to accomplish in that book? Yeah, so uh, <laughs> weirdly, uh, my recent academic history has been trying to defend creedal statements that have been attacked. Uh, so the stuff that we've done on the Trinity uh, has been in particular relation to one of my earliest papers in that regard, which was a, a essay that's published in the Sanders and Swain edited volume, Retrieving Eternal Generation. Um, so I spent, I've spent a lot of time in the Doctrine of the Trinity um, and specifically on eternal generation, trying to, de to, to defend the Nicene language uh, about the eternal relations of origin. Um, that that project sort of led me to think about what else is getting attacked. <laughs> uh, but really, it was it was a, it was way more. Well, maybe not way more, but it was a bit more spiritual than that. Um, <laughs> I, every every Holy Saturday for a number of years, I was really moved by the collect on Holy Saturday as I was reading through uh, the Book of Common Prayer. And, you know, just thought back to my seminary days and how the line he descended into hell was attacked and and said to be added later on and these sorts of things and just took an interest in, in trying to do the same kind of thing where it's like let me let me try to demonstrate the biblical historical and theological rationale for this historic christian doctrine and so published a book a couple of years ago on on that clause and it's just called he descended to the dead um so yep um right now we're working on 40 questions on the Trinity together. So with Craigle. So that's the, the next immediate thing. Okay, cool. Well, if the, is that, does the 40 questions on the Trinity book have an Amazon page yet? Not yet. No. Okay. So uh, our manuscript is due. I don't know that I necessarily want to publicize what it's due <laughs> soon. <laughs> soon. Uh, we'll see if we meet the deadline. I hope if you're a Craigle editor, we're certainly going to meet the deadline. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> We'll see if we meet the deadline. I hope we will. Um, so, we're, yeah, it, it should be next year, middle of next year, when the Amazon page comes up, we hope, I think. Okay. So, well, I didn't know that you guys were doing that. That's very cool. Um, so we'll keep our eyes peeled for that. And then I know, Luke, you are also writing on angels. Is that right? You have a book coming out on angels. you want to say anything about that? Yeah. So it's uh, kind of a kind of a lay level introduction to the doctrine of angels and demons, which is another another doctrine that is hugely important 
and the history of interpretation and the history of, doc, of doctrine, but is at least relatively muted in contemporary evangelical spirituality. Um, and so, yeah, it's just a book that will cover the biblical, the biblical, you know, teaching on angels and demons, but also thinking about uh, the history of the doctrine, um, looking at patristic medieval reformation sources on the doctrine of angels and demons. Cool. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you guys for chatting. I really appreciate the work that you're doing. Uh, keep up the keep up the great work. You should uh, both start YouTube channels and uh, help me feel a little bit less lonely out here. <laughs> so, because people always make these appeals, like, "How are you a Baptist when you're like engaging?" And I'm trying to tell them, like, "There's a lot of us. Okay, <laughs> a lot of Baptists are actually really Thanks. interested in historical <laughs> theology." So, yeah. So anyway. Uh, Keep up the great work. And for people watching this, um, make sure you check out the Center for Baptist Renewal website and check out the great work that they're doing. All right. Thanks, everybody. See you next time.